We all want a happy life, and there are thousands of opinions about what will help get you there. So why does it seem like so few people are actually finding true happiness? This series explores why happiness is so elusive and how our relationship with God leads to the contentment that we all desire. Here's today's teaching. Our scripture reading this morning is found on uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Please follow along on your Bible or on the sermon insert or on the screen. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but, for, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is sin in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or a sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or a sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. Uh, let's, let's pray. Father, we confess that we have found life in your son, and we want to live as your son lived. And so we ask very simply that your spirit, that your word, that the life and love of Jesus would, would meet our need uh, with faith, with grace, with gospel hope. We pray that out of your love for us, we would find ourselves loving more like you did. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, good morning. Uh, good to see you. Um, last week, I attempted to show you how this idea of freedom in today's world has morphed and changed into a picture of total and complete autonomy. That today, you and only you are the necessary center of your universe. Today, in our culture, you define all aspects of your personhood. Your purpose, your identity, your truth, all of that hinges on you. Which, of course, is very different from how we viewed life even a generation ago. But we've taken this huge step in redefining what freedom looks like because we think that this new definition holds the key to happiness. 
because there is this entrenched belief in the deep recesses of the human heart that says, the more I focus on me, the more I make my life all about me, the better and happier my life will become. Now, if that claim were true, then there should be all kinds of statistical and anecdotal evidence that should show our happiness index kind of trending upward. And the average person today should say, yeah, I feel way happier than I did a decade ago or two decades ago. Um, But that isn't what we see. In fact, we find the exact opposite. In just about every metric that I could find in our culture, every survey, every study, every report are concluding the same thing, that we are not happier as a society. Rather, our cultural levels of anxiety and depression are actually going through the roof. Uh, Medical News Today described this trend of anxiety levels in the United States over the last five years as determined by visits to healthcare practitioners for the purpose of dealing with mental health issues, they called it, quote, snowballing. In 2019, Barnes and Noble said that sales of books on anxiety and depression spiked 25% over the previous year. And that was before a global pandemic hit. That was before, you know, wars were gripping the world. That was before inflation took off and heads of lettuce now cost, what, four bucks a head? Actually, I have no idea how much a head of lettuce costs, but my wife keeps telling me they cost way more than they should, so I just grabbed a dollar figure, I don't know. And some of you may think, well, yeah, of course, we've been through the global ringer, right? Everybody's anxiety level has got to be going up just because of the state that the world is in right now. But what I find most interesting in the data is that anxiety and depression levels are the highest in the Western world. Uh, The Journal of American Psychiatry published a comprehensive study looking at the levels of anxiety in 150,000 people across the socioeconomic spectrum in 26 countries. And their hypothesis, they expected to find that there were higher levels of anxiety in poor countries and among people of lower economic status. They thought, because that kind of makes sense, right? They have a harder time making ends meet. They're having to wrestle with real life issues that you know people with more economic means don't necessarily have to wrestle with. So you expect that their anxiety levels would be higher. But the exact opposite was true. In spite of our wealth and our relative comfort, Canada and US had anxiety, had anxiety rates 3.5 times higher than the poorest countries. There is something culturally going on that is making us less and less happy. Now, I know the roots of, of these thorns of anxiety are, that are spreading like a blackberry bush through our, complex, uh, through our culture. I know those roots are, are complex. But much of our anxiety can be explained by the failure of our culture to deliver what we most need to thrive in life. These skyward mental health graphs are a dashboard warning light telling us that our obsession with materialism, 
with comfort, with individualism, with autonomy are not translating into a greater sense of happiness in life. It's just not working for us. Now, one of the essential things that each one of us needs if we are going to thrive in life is every one of us needs a variety of level of relationships with people who know us, love us, accept us so that we can belong. In short, we need community. And you will, you will get agreement that we need that from secular sociologists and psychologists and from every spiritual leader out there. They would say, yes, we're all relational beings. We desperately need deep and meaningful relationships. They are a bedrock essential ingredient for a happy and whole life. And yet, one of the catchphrases we keep hearing in the news today is this quote-unquote loneliness epidemic that's happening all around us. Today, more than any other time, In recent history, people feel utterly alone with no sense of community or no sense of belonging. A Gallup uh, survey released in October of 2023 reported that 25%, one in four Americans feel, quote, profoundly lonely. With the loneliest demographic being the 29 and under. the generation that has been most actively shaped by our modern fixation on freedom is actually the loneliest. And I think there's a direct correlation because our cultural obsession with autonomy and individualism wars against our experience of meaningful relationships. Because you know this, community, deep relationships require sacrifice. They require us to lay down some of our freedom, some of our autonomy for the sake of the relationship. When I got married to my wife, Kimberly, I wasn't just saying yes to Kimberly, I was saying no to four billion other ladies who missed out, right? (laughs) I don't actually think that way, but... (laughs) But my vows were forsaking all others. I'll be faithful to you. Right? It's a necessary, liberating sacrifice of freedom for the sake of deep relationship. Now imagine a marriage where one person refuses to give up their freedom. They say, no, 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 my time is mine, my money is mine, my sexuality is mine. How fulfilling of a marriage is that going to be? Marriage only works when, when two people voluntarily lay aside some of their freedom for the good of the other, and hence the good of the marriage and the good of themselves. This is how relationships and community works. You parents who work in Fort McMurray or who spend time out on a Navy destroyer where you're gone for long periods of time from your family and your kids miss you and your spouse misses you and and when you get home, they're all over you because they want your time. Your spouse needs your time. Your time is no longer your own and even though in that moment, the thing that you want more than anything is just time to yourself and maybe time to go fishing, you don't do that. You're watching Paw Patrol and playing Lego. Why? 
Because the joy of family requires you to lay down some of your personal freedom. We find ourselves filled with with joy and the life of community when we lay aside ourselves for the sake of others. See, friends, community is this buzzword that everybody wants, but few people actually experience because most of us are unwilling to give the high level of commitment and sacrifice community requires if it's going to flourish. And in part, we've been culturally conditioned out of it. Uh, There's a phrase that everybody under 40 in this room probably knows, and it's the phrase FOMO. Fear of missing out. And FOMO is a cultural reality because we've been conditioned as consumers to want to have freedom of choice and option to always have the best avenue available to us. And so any type of relational commitment feels like restraint. It feels like constraint. Because saying yes to community means saying no to a bunch of other things in order to relationally invest in that community. And so your freedom feels constrained. Uh, Mark Sayers said this, speaking of our culture, he said, quote, we've been sold a bill of goods that unlimited freedom will bring us to utopia or we can buy whatever we want, go wherever we want, be whatever we want, sleep with whomever we want, but the system of all individualism and little community, all freedom and little meaning is starting to fail. And the canary in the coal mine is our levels of anxiety and loneliness. Now the good news is, is our need for meaningful community and connection, this intrinsic desire we have for self-expression and freedom, find a unique place in, um, they find a unique ally and advocate in Jesus and his followers. Let me say that again, because I bobbled what I was trying to say. Our need for community and connection, as well as its intrinsic need for freedom and to matter, finds an ally and an advocate in Jesus and his followers. As I told you last week, God is for your freedom. Jesus actually died for you to be free. But it's not a freedom to to do whatever, whenever, however. It's a freedom that liberates you from a life that is all about you and instead releases you into the most important things in life, like meaningful on-the-ground relationships. And so Jesus' gospel freedom translates into our experience of real-time relationships. So I looked at last week, Paul says in Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free This gospel freedom doesn't hang in the air like a theory or a concept or an abstraction. When you open up your heart by faith to the good news that Jesus Christ has died for your freedom, this lavishing of grace that comes upon you doesn't get just filed away somewhere in your mental processing. It spills out into your life. And so true true gospel freedom creates a particular kind of church community. 
It creates a gospel culture that, you, that when you see it, you can feel it, you can experience it, you can recognize it when it comes in among us. And when that happens, when the reality of our gospel freedom starts becoming our shared experience, it begins to create a place that people want to be a part of. Because there, in that place, they, they feel alive, they feel valued, they feel noticed, they feel like they matter, they feel like they belong. And words like hope and power are not just like empty cliche church words, but they become realities that we are experiencing in the messiness of life. And man, do we need this. So central, you need to know that I am not content with leading the church that is content with merely having great gospel doctrine. I wanna be part of a community that treasures and celebrates a gospel community and gospel culture among us. Because that's where men and women come alive. Now, one of the beautiful consequences of our freedom in Christ is it creates a culture of love among us. Paul, after proclaiming freedom in Christ in Galatians 5, he comes to verse 6 and he says this, the only thing that counts, and he's referencing your freedom, what Christ has done for you, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Your Christianity, your belief in the gospel should be leading you more and more into a life of love. And if it isn't, something is dramatically wrong with your Christian faith. Now Paul comes to that conclusion because of what Jesus says here in John 13, which I want to look at for the rest of our time together. John 13 In verse 34, Jesus says, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The whole anchoring of this idea, of this declaration by Jesus is these five beautiful words, as I have loved you. All the beautiful implications, they all flow out of those five words, that God has loved us supremely from his cross. This is the source of our freedom. Now, I know we're all in a process of of coming to grips with this and really, really believing this and really anchoring our heart and our hope in this. Because too often we can get to that place where we think that God just kind of tolerates us or that he endures us or that he kind of has this simmering low-grade annoyance with us. Probably because that's often the way we feel about ourselves and others. So we personify that onto God on a bigger scale. But in Christ, there is none of that toward you. Out of sheer love for you, Christ went to the grave and back. Paul says it so eloquently in Ephesians 1 verse 7. 
He says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of his grace that he lavished. He lavished on us according to his good pleasure. There is no tight-fistedness of God towards you. There, There is no hesitancy in him to pour out more love and grace on you. God is bursting with joy according to his good pleasure, Paul says. God is bursting with joy to pour his dignifying, saving grace into your life. He is tickled pink to do it again and again and again and again. And so what I want you to ask yourself is what type of culture, what type of community gets formed when we really believe this? When we start marinating our faith and our church in this good news? Well, I think Jesus tells us is that creates a a magnetic culture where the deepest human needs for belonging are met here in us because we love each other in a way that is different from every other human community. This is why Jesus says, I give you a new command. He's saying that your community, the way that you love, the, the, the culture that springs out, out, up out of your love is going to be different. It's not gonna have a peer, it's going to be new. A new command I give you. Now of course, people had heard about the call to love others long before Jesus opened his mouth. There's nothing new in that. Moses commanded God's people in Leviticus to love their neighbors, so that isn't new. This idea of of being a part of a place where we love each other is not new. What is new is the standard of what love looks like. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Love is now measured and modeled by Jesus, by his life. And that is a whole new ballgame. Because when Jesus stepped into the world, he did so swinging love in every direction. Like it didn't matter how messed up or broken somebody's life was. Jesus made that person feel like, like God was before them, grinning with arms open wide. Love spilled out of him all the time. And so he said things like, like love other people like you love yourself. Love them so much it hurts. When they offend you, forgive them. When you see others in need, pour yourself out for them. If it comes down to it, give your life to your friends. And then he lived like that. Like he poured out all he was into those he loved. If they succeeded, he celebrated with them. If they suffered, he cried with them. If they were sick, he healed them. If they were at rock bottom, he had mercy for them. 
That was how he chose to live day in and day out. And as beautiful as his life was, it was just the appetizer to the staggering place his love would lead him as he literally staggered up the hill to Calvary and laid down his life for us. Displaying a love like nothing we had ever seen before. And so he says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. This is a different call. This is a a different kind of spiritual life where our primary marker of his life is his love in us. You can have knowledge without Jesus. You could have A plus morality without Jesus. You can have a robust doctrine of sin without Jesus. You can get up here and on the stage and, and put on a face mic and eloquently you know, declare biblical truths in the tongues of men and angels without Jesus. But you cannot have this quality and quantity of love in your life and in your community without him. In 125 AD, there was a Greek uh, philosopher. His name was uh, Aristides. And he attempted to explain Christianity to the Roman emperor Hadrian. And as he tried to explain it, he didn't reference any of their statements or their creeds. He didn't bring up any of their political positions or their policies. Here's how he described those early Christians. Listen to this. Quote, they love one another. They never fail to help widows, to save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the one who has nothing. If they see an immigrant, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a brother. You see, friends, when a church is, is really faithing in the gospel truth, A pervading, defining love marks their community. A love that is out of the ordinary because Jesus himself sets the boundaries for it. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. You must also love one another. Now, if I just pause right here and kind of anticipate what your heart might be thinking when you hear these words, your heart might be doing what my heart naturally wants to do when I read these words, is that I just feel conviction. I'm just like, oh, man. Like, I just don't have it in me to love like this. I mean, not really. I want to love more. But I get, I get frustrated and I get impatient and I just reflexively find myself putting my own needs first. I can't generate or sustain enough affection or selflessness to love anywhere near this. And if you're thinking that, I get it. Because your pastor can't either. But friends... Remember, Jesus says, I give you this new command. In the gospel, these are words of hope, 
more than they are words of conviction because it is Jesus who gives us this command, which means they come with all the grace that we need to follow through. You see, when we wave the white flag of our own inability to love like Jesus and we surrender to him, that's when he comes and he does his work. Maybe you could say it this way. Jesus is not not pinning his hope on you and your capacity to love. He's asking you to pin your hope on his and him. To open yourself up to more of him by faith. And when you do, you find more of his love. As we come to him with the empty hands of faith, bringing our need to Jesus, we find his spirit pour more and more of his love into our hearts. And that's what he wants to do for each of us. For those of us who feel like like we're not capable of living out of this capacity of love, Jesus wants to meet you and make you sufficient in his love. And so for the person who came in here late and is going to sneak out of here early because you feel like an outsider, like you just don't belong, Jesus has more love for you. And to the Bible answer guy in the room who thinks you're smarter than everybody else, Jesus has more love for you. And to the mom who feels like you're you're barely keeping it together and holding on, Jesus has more love for you today. To the gospel party, the invitation comes out, Jesus says, B-Y-O-N, bring your own need. Because he brings all the love sufficient for the whole party. And as we bring our need and open ourselves up to him, we find more of his love impacting us, filling us, and then spilling out of us to one another. Because Jesus is not just the boundary of love, he's actually the source of gospel love in a church community. And this is good news. And this is also why in verse 35, Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another in this way, out of my love. This actually, this type of love is the best demonstration of our of our Christianity, that our love somehow creates this new community. And when we, when we do, we're like one of those open house show, show homes, right? That, that everybody's invited to come in and walk through and check out and experience and see that it's so good that they want to move into the neighborhood. That's what Jesus' love is like. In fact, it is so important, is this love, that our Lord gave the watching world the right to judge and decide for themselves if we really are disciples or not, or just big talkers. Um, Pastor and writer Ray Ortland says this, if our love amounts to no more than ordinary human love, then the world has a right to conclude that we're not real Christians. We might be real Christians, but no one will conclude that we are real Christians or want to come in here among us to find Jesus. And that's why Jesus fills us with his love, because it has the potential to point to something bigger and more transcendent and more beautiful than just us. 
And when we start to live out of that love, when it starts to manifest itself here, our anxiety-ridden, lonely, perpetually happy, happiness-starved culture will take notice. One of the best parts about being a pastor is that I get an inside peek. I get some kind of inside you know, knowledge of, of what Jesus' love is doing in the lives and community of his disciples. I get a front row seat into how gospel doctrine is actually creating a church culture that oozes love or not. Um, a couple of years back, I was meditating on Jesus' words here, and, and I went and had my journal open, and I just started taking an inventory and writing as fast as I can think of examples of, of ways that our church that we were a part of then was loving each other like Jesus. And there were so many thoughts, big and small, that were coming to my mind that I could, I could just, as fast as I could write, I was putting them down on page. And, and let, me share, let me share a few of them that give you a picture of, of what this looks like. Um, I saw families come together and financially carry several families who found themselves unemployed for months, paid their mortgage, bought their groceries, paid their lighting and hydro. I saw a family adopt a baby boy to a single mom, adopt a a baby boy from a single mom who was connected to our church who had no means or capacity to raise him. I saw cars given away because somebody had a need and others had extra. I saw single moms have their cars regularly serviced and looked after by talented mechanics in our church. I saw single folks basically adopted by a church family to be their de facto grandparent or their de facto grandkid. I saw brothers and sisters come alongside another brother in Christ after he fell off the wagon with his alcohol addiction and I watched them sit with him as he went through the horrors of detox on his body. And I watched them love him and another man into rehab and recovery at the cost of tens of thousands of their own dollars and hundreds of hours of their time investment. I saw a family pass on buying a vehicle so they could sponsor a refugee from Afghanistan. And I saw the church welcome him in as a brother of Christ and as one of them. I saw a church family shovel shovel a a, a widow's driveway every time it snowed in Fernie, which is like all the time. It's just like they shoveled like you would not even believe how much snow they shoveled for her. I saw in the face of pain and suffering, in the face of failure and tragedy, I saw a community of Jesus show up and carry each other time and time again. And I saw people so different from one another. I mean politically, I mean ethnically, I mean socially, I mean theologically. I saw them link arms, the arms of their lives to one another and to the call to love each other as family. And that is the evidence that they're not merely big talkers but love-struck followers of Jesus. And people notice. I have no idea how this happened, but I got a call from a producer at CBC Radio for the Kelowna Morning Show asking if I would be interviewed live on air because they heard about some of the radical, incredible things that our church was doing to love each other and love our community. And I don't know how they heard about it, 
but I got to get on air and talk about what this looks like in our community. He's like, well, why do you guys do How do you motivate people to do this? And I'm like, well, I don't. It's just because Jesus has loved us so well and so thoroughly that it's just flowing out of us. That's exactly what Jesus said would happen. Worship team, you can come on up. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Central, you need to know that one of the reasons we as a family came here is because we felt the love of Christ in this place, in this community. We must treasure this and protect this. We must treasure and steward our gospel freedom, which is the source of our gospel culture towards and love towards one another. Because in a city that is filled with people who are acquainted with loneliness, who would like to belong, have no idea how or where, because all around them, in our culture, people are redlining with anxiety and anger. And for all of our talk of tolerance in our culture, we are so quick to cancel each other relationally at the slightest provocation. In the midst of that reality, a reality that makes belonging so difficult, we have the privileged opportunity to show them and shock them with a quality and quantity of love that's not our own. A love that's not grounded in how lovable they are or how attractive we are or how similar our stories or our background, but a love that is from the overflow of the magnificence of what Jesus has done for us. We choose to live and love as Jesus did toward one another. And not only is that the type of community that you wanna be a part of, that's a type of the community that becomes irresistible to our city. Wouldn't it be amazing, Central? Like, wouldn't it be amazing if future generations look back on us and the first thing they thought about us was not how staunch we were? Or how there was a lack of any messiness theologically among us. The first thing they thought of was not how successful and wealthy they are, but the first thing they thought of is, man, those people at Central, they know how to love. Seventeen hundred years ago, Tertullian said, "It is mainly the deeds of love so noble that lead many to put a brand on us." And Jesus would say, "Tertullian, you're right, because a new command I give you." Love one another as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. May this be true of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the magnificence of your love. We thank you for the limitless scope of your love. We're, we're like people who've been dropped in a Pacific Ocean of love. There's no bottom beneath us. There's no shore on either side. We are, we are immersed in the fullness of your love. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. And you have lavished this love on us in joy. And it brings you joy when we, 
we bring our lack of love to you and open ourselves up and say, Jesus, would you help us? Would you help us be more like you, to live more like you, to love more like you? You delight to meet us there with your spirit, to re-gospel our hearts and the bounty of who you are and what you've done, and to pour gratitude and love and brotherly affection out in us for each other. I ask that that would be true of us. May our robust gospel doctrine be matched by a robust gospel community here that people would know, oh, Jesus is in that place because look how they love each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening and we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.